There are a few things in life that raise our awareness and get our attention more than a good countdown. It could be, a see, case in point, it could be before the blast off of a rocket or shuttle on a launch pad, New Year's Eve at Times Square, or how about the imminent explosion in an action film as the protagonist works frantically to disarm the bomb before it's too late. Or in this case, in the clip that we just watched from The Hunger Games, the countdown leads to the beginning of The Hunger Games and the free-for-all killing spree between 24 adolescent contestants to see which one of these will be the last one standing, which one and only one will be the one that survives. As the games begin, they're all at peak intensity and adrenaline, trying to decide if they brave running to the cornucopia where the weapons and the supplies are at that will help you endure in the game. However, the downside of the cornucopia is the high percentage of deaths that happen to those that venture forward, never knowing what's going to happen in the melee. So the option is to run away into the woods, empty-handed, but at least you survive for the day and seek to live on in the games. Well, what's important for us this morning is the focus, the narrowing of our affections and of our attention. Just like the players in the game in the movie, we sit up, we lean in, we're waiting with increased expectation. What's going to happen? It is this heightened awareness, our mind moving at a quicker speed, trying to figure out what might take place. In my Marine Corps days, we called this vigilance, this awareness. And that is why I showed this movie clip with the countdown this morning. It's to get our attention and lets us know that something important is about to take place. Now, as we continue this morning through our message series called Morph, uh, this is exactly what Paul tells us as well. It's where he has led to up to this point. The writer of the book, here at the end of chapter 13, decides to pause and give us a pseudo-countdown in order to increase our focus and regain our attention. We'll get to that here in a moment. If you've not been with us previously, we are currently working through a book in the Bible called Romans, it's actually a letter, a really long letter. It's got chapters in it. When's the last time you got a letter with chapters in it? It was written by the Apostle Paul, who's an early leader in the, who's a leader in the early church, uh, which began in the days after Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended back to be with God the Father in heaven and left his followers behind to advance his work and his kingdom here on earth. Paul wrote a number of letters, and this particular letter was a long one to the Jesus followers living in the city of Rome, hence the name Romans. And we are in chapter 13 of this long letter this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with us, Romans 13, 11 through 14, and also the words will be up on the screen. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now in the passage just before this one that we talked about last week, Paul talks about the importance of love in the life of the Christian and how all the commands of God, which he told us in the Old Testament, are summed up in the simple command, love your neighbor. Paul states that very phrase. And as Paul transitions into this final section of chapter 13, he pivots from the love emphasis and engages the readers with an exhortation. And that exhortation is simple. Wake up! Sorry about that. Not really. And this is our first point in today's passage. Wake up. Get ready. If we look in verse 11, we see this stated multiple times. First he says, you know the time. Then he says, the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. Then he says, salvation is nearer now to us than when we first believe, which means we're getting closer. We are closer to that day of fulfillment that we are living for, that we were promised from the beginning. Our fulfillment, our reunion, it all being brought to an end, a glorious end, is now closer than it was. And he continues into verse 12, saying much of the same thing. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. This is how Paul starts out this final passage in 13. Now, this can be difficult for us on a Sunday morning, especially on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, when the after effects of tryptophan are still taking a toll on many of us. Except for those of you who ventured out into Black Friday, America's annual version of the Hunger Games. <laughs> there can be only one 70-inch ultra-high-def TV for $6.99. It's really ridiculous and hilarious at the same time. I don't know whether to hate it or love it, but it is what we are and what we do. But for the rest of us who are still recovering from the holiday hangover, this is a tough message to hear, or at least respond to. You see, the people of God, Christians, have historically been very sober-minded. We deny ourselves things that every other person gets to enjoy. Maybe not perpetually, but occasionally. And not just because they might be bad, we do it for good things. But we do it as Christians to stay alert, to not be people of indulgence all the time. We know how much our flesh, our desires, want and love to be fulfilled. Unchecked, our desires are very dangerous things. That's not how the world thinks. And yet the Bible tells us this world and all of its trappings, all of its comforts, all of its temptations, it's not our world. It is not our home. We are simply traveling through. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says something similar to Romans 13. I want to read this. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Paul's saying, it's just assumed as followers of Jesus, you know this. I don't need to say this. I shouldn't have to. I'm saying it, but I don't need to because it's obvious for us, people of God, 
followers of Jesus. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. While the world around us marches along, doing what they did yesterday, again today and tomorrow, the same thing, the days, the months, the years, the calendar changes, but it's the same essential routine over and over until what? Until what destination? Until we blindly fall off the cliff following the herd as they march along. Paul tells us here in 1 Thessalonians, like he did in Romans 13, that as Christians, we should be, we are fully aware of the stakes, of the importance of the time, of the importance of this moment, or at least we should be. In verse 4, he continues, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. That's not who we are. For you are all children of light, children of the day. Again, similar to the passage in Romans. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. The similarities are there. The day-night references are there. Paul wrote both of these passages to two different cities, to two different churches, one in Rome, one in Thessalonica, one in Italy, one in Greece, or excuse me, uh, on the Thessalonica, yep, that was in Greece. And in that, we can see this was an important theme in his teaching and in general, New Testament belief, the practical side of our faith. The Apostle John might talk about this even more than Paul does. He was there when Jesus died. He saw Jesus rise from the dead. He saw Jesus ascend into heaven. In fact, he was the last living apostle, disciple, on the earth. All the others died before him. He said in 1 John 2.18, his first letter, children, it is the last hour. Now this is hard for us to look at realistically. I'm doing my study this week and I'm talking through my message with Jason and he goes, are you going to mention the fact that it's been 2,000 years since John said it's the last hour? Does that undermine his credibility? Well, yeah, I guess. Um, in his time and our time, there has been a significant period of time that has passed. But the actual day isn't necessarily the point that he or God is wanting to make either. It's the spirit in which we live. It's the spirit in which we see our faith. What does it call from us? What does it ask of us? John did live to see the visions of the end in Revelation, and he tells us in the book of Revelation, in addition to other glimpses of how the end will come and what will happen in the end, tells us this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. It says this, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour, and I will come against you. What it sounds like John's saying is that if you don't take seriously the urgency of what it means to follow Jesus with the life that we have, it sounds like John's equating that you might not be the sincere believer that you assume to be. Can you be a sincere 
follower of Jesus and reject the call of alarm, the call of sobriety that he gives us routinely and with great repetition in the New Testament. Because why would God come against his own? If you're not believing, if you're not responding, if you're not taking heed, very interesting passage there. That John, God speaks to us through the Apostle John there in Revelation. And this is such a danger for us in America. We as teachers and pastors who get up here, who share, say this regularly, I know, but it cannot be overstated. This is one of the greatest dangers for an affluent, safe, comfortable community of Christ followers. Our indulgence, our flesh, our desire is in fact our greatest enemy. And so often we can be lulled to sleep, to spiritual sleep, to spiritual slumber as a result. Remember Revelation 3.3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. But in verse 12, we see a transition, a shift. We see the words, so then. And this is the point in our passage morning where Paul takes a turn. Our first point was, get ready. And Paul begins to take a turn here. And we're going to see an, the next, this verse and the two after it contrasts in each verses that give us points two and three and kind of clarify what it is that God wants to share with us here this morning. Now, if you've been coming to Rooftop for a while, we've covered this in the past. But we talk about terms uh, indicative and imperative. Now, the indicative and imperative, if you don't know, there are different moods in the English language. Languages have moods. Languages are broken up in different ways, and the indicative and imperative are different moods within uh, the English language. The indicative mood is used to make factual statements, let you know of things that are true. The imperative mood is used to make requests or commands, appeals to people. The Bible routinely pairs these two moods together, and it'll give an imperative that is rooted in the truth of an indicative. So it tells you something that has happened that is true, and then it gives you an imperative, a response to that indicative. Paul does this often in his writings. We see this in Romans 13. And it's this so then that is the indicator that, okay, this is what is true. The times are important. Vigilance is required. The day has come. The sleep and the slumber of life, of the world, is to be put aside. So then, what does Paul say? He says, cast off. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness. In verse 12. In verse 13, he says, let us walk, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, cast off. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We have a cast off, and we're going to have get to a put on, but first we're going to spend some time in this cast off imperative. Paul, ever the psychologist, is trying to persuade, to assist. He's trying to help the human mind 
hear, understand, and respond to, based on human nature, what God is telling us through him. He starts out with a general statement. He says, the works of darkness. He says, cast off, generally, the works of darkness. Cast off sin. Cast off that which is evil. Cast off the things that God has told us not to do. All of those are synonyms for what this cast off is. It's his first statement in verse 12. But then in 13, he gets down into nitty-gritty. He gets down into specifics. He gives us three pairs of sins to avoid. The first is this, orgies and drunkenness. Now, their orgies and our orgies are different things, okay? Our orgies are oriented around sex and sexual behavior. Theirs could have involved that, but their orgies had to do with ceremonies related to sacrifices offered to pagan gods. That's what it was about. The time of, of, we still live in a time of idolatry, but their idols were physical. Their idols were wooden, they were stone, they were gold, and they would have various ceremonies to gods, pagan gods, false gods, other than worshiping the one true God. And that's what he speaks of to orgies. And drunkenness. (laughs) That's not something that, uh, that we've left in the past. Drunkenness is something that we very much uh, encounter today. In fact, you may have seen it or experienced it just over the past couple of days. Thanksgiving dinner is done. Let's bust out the wine or the whiskey or the bourbon or the beers. Got the games going. And you're in a situation where somebody has all of a sudden had too much. And drunkenness is present. It's interesting, our sister and brother-in-law came from uh, Nashville, as they usually do. We've been there once, maybe twice over the years, but usually they come here as part of the Zilke family Thanksgiving. And they love the Lord, and uh, they're a great sister and brother-in-law to have, two beautiful girls, my nieces. But he likes to have a drink. He'll come and he'll make me a, a bourbon sour or some of these drinks that he, he likes to have. This year he came, though, no drinking. And uh, I asked him, Kent, what's going on? He said, well, you know, about a month ago I was just having my reading time, reading the Bible, praying, and I sensed the Lord saying to me, Kent, stop. For a season, just stop. And I'm just sitting there in my kitchen listening to him tell me this, and Kent is a phenomenal brother, he's a great uncle, but I'm so proud of him because I know how much he enjoys, and he doesn't do it to excess. But even he understood that when the Spirit was saying, this is something that is good to moderation, can be quite bad to excess, say no and just deny yourself altogether. I was encouraged by that. Paul continues with sexual immorality and sensuality. And here, these are all over our world, these are plastered on every part of our lives, on the clickbait, on our computer screens, on visuals, on the TV. We don't have to go looking and this comes in. But interesting the term, the pair of words here. Paul says sexual immorality and sensuality. Now sexual immorality we get, that's the act of sex and sexual activity outside of the proper confines of marriage, which is designed to protect and is the one place where God has promised to bless sexual intimacy. 
but sensuality. How many of us love to get on the path of sensuality? Whether it's in the books that we read, the shows that we watch, the conversations at the office maybe we entertain. Sensuality is something that we all, the jokes, the flirting. Sensuality is poison. And we've all taken a little bit, if not a lot, of that poison. It drips onto us. We aren't even watching. Something for us to think about today, not just the act of sex that might be dishonorable to God, but what are the, on that journey, that pathway towards, what is it God saying to you, to me? The third thing he addresses here, the third pair of things, is the jealousy and the quarreling. Anybody struggle with anger? Anybody struggle with argumentation? Anybody get in an argument (laughs) over the weekend with the family? These are very visible, prevalent, dangerous activities, indulgences of our heart. And we need to be alert and we need to be putting off. We need to be turning away. The final statement here, make no provision for the flesh. We're going to come back to that here in the end, and I want to touch on that. There's some other verses that Paul, that are given to us in the Bible to affirm this casting off. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's what sin is. That's what these things are. They're weights in a race. Who would run a race and put extra weight on them? Maybe in the training part. Maybe when you go out to train, you add the weight so that when the race comes, you take the weight off and you feel like you're 50 pounds lighter. But who puts the weight on for the actual race? Only a fool. And yet we're weighing ourselves down regularly. This is the race. This morning, slumber's over. Nap time's done. We're called to be up, to be at it, to be alert. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 to 22, we get something similar. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Again, we're taught to put off, to cast off the old self, the way we would have lived, to cast off the way the world does live. Is your life and that of the unbelieving community around you the same? That's the old life. That's not how it's supposed to be. There's supposed to be a difference. There's supposed to be a differentiation between the old life, the world's way, and the life that God has called us to, whatever that might be, however that might be. Colossians 3.9 also says this, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Once again, put off, put off. It's an absence of discipline, and we don't like that word. We don't like the denying of ourselves, but as Donnie has shown in previous weeks, the benefit of some discipline and his losing 170 pounds and counting, and the health, the years that he has added on to his life, the quality of life, 
the spiritual freedom that he talks about, the victories over his own flesh, his own indulgences. Discipline is a powerful thing. The Bible speaks of it very positively. We need to just say no. We need to use those most powerful words, no, no. Sweet little Vivian, my now 17-month-old, the first word she learned, sadly, was dop, dop, stop, but in her version. And she would say dop. Oh, and the kids laughed, and they loved it, and they celebrated. You tell, she started doing something, she went dop. Oh, yay, Vivian, that's great. Say it again, say it again. Dop. Oh, yeah. No, these are powerful words. She became addicted to this word. And she would tell us all the time, just for the sake of controlling the room, dop, 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 dop. I had to tell the kids, you can't celebrate this. It's not funny. Do not give that kind of power to a 17-month-old who cannot curb her impulses. She will, she will either control us or destroy us. <laughs> you see my point? But it's a powerful word, and we need to say, dop. We need to say, stop. We need to say, No. We need to draw a line. We need to cast off. And obviously, as we know, we can't just say no to something without replacing something. Psychology 101. Paul knows this. And Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. He tells a parable about this house metaphorically being a person, being cleaned out of sin and evil and the demons that were present. But if you don't replace it with the presence of God, with the power of God, with righteousness, over time, the evil will return, the demons will come back, and sevenfold, seven times the number that were there originally. So even as we stop, as we cast off, what must we do? We must put on. We must replace the space that has been made. And this is the second imperative he gives us. Cast off, put on. Verse 12, put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. And 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which we're going to come back to here in a moment. There are other verses. Galatians 3.27, I love it. says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ, you've put Christ on. Where have you gone? Where have I looked? What have we done that if Christ were really present in the room, we would be humiliated? To know that having done what we've done, having done what I've done, Jesus is there. We forget that. We're lulled to sleep. But we've put on Christ. Where we're present, he's present. When we indulge sin, he's there watching us. We're actually forcing him, since he is in us, to indulge sin as we do. Those are the stakes. That's What's taking place? Colossians 3.10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Ephesians 4.24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And now back to Romans 13, verse 14, where we're going to close here today. This is a wonderful verse. I don't know if we, you skimmed over it, but we're going to spend the last couple minutes here before we close because I, I want to dive into this one. But put on 
not obedience, but put on a pure heart, not put on clean lips. What does Paul tell us here? He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has offered himself, not a litany of commands, of laws that we have to follow. He's offered himself. He's offered his person to come, to be in us, to be with us, to walk with us. He's not asking us to do a list of things that are arduous and and overbearing. He says, put me on. Enter into me by faith. Appropriate through the Holy Spirit, which I've given to you, the very Spirit of Christ. You're not alone in this. Your effort to deny your indulgences, to live differently, to cast off, to be alert. You're not alone. Put me on. How many of us are lonely, alone in this effort, if we're even showing the effort at all to live righteously, to resist the inundating nature of the evil of the world around us? I mean, it's just oppressive, all the temptations that are laid before us. And it's tiring to say no. And he's not just saying, say no, say no, say no. no." He is saying no, but he's saying, to say no, put on me. Enter into communion with me. How do we do that? Well, we take seriously his command right after this, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I want you to think right now. I want you to think about how you are making provision to sin. How about that? Welcome to church, Sunday morning. We all have our private thought lives that nobody ever knows what's going on inside this mind. And let's just let the Holy Spirit start bringing things to mind. How are you and I making provision to sin? Are we keeping that relationship at school or at work going? We know it's not an honorable relationship, but I got her number, I got his number, it's there. If I really ever lonely, or, well, if I just want someone to talk to, we're making provision. Let's talk about alcohol. The Lord has said, do not. And, well, I got a bottle in the cupboard. It's there if I need it. I've got a six-pack out in the garage. I'm not going to drink it, obviously, but you, eh, you know, it's there. We're addicted to entertainment. And yet we've got the premium package streaming into our home to watch any and everything that we would want at that time. We struggle with sensuality. We've got TV shows and movies coming in that only inflame this. We're making provision. Anger. Do you have an issue with anger? I know I have a propensity to get angry, to respond emotionally. Not doing anything about that once you know or have been made aware of it, that is making provision for it because those types of things need to be confronted and addressed. Your inactivity is making provision for the flesh because nothing's going to change until you by faith say stop. That's how we put on Jesus. How else do we put on Jesus? We love him. And how do we love him? We love him by spending time with him, the same way we would love our children, the same way we would love our wives, the same way we would love our parents, the same way we would love our friends. We spend time with him. That's how you put on Jesus. You cannot put Jesus on without loving him, without spending time with him. 
and he has given us one primary way through which we spend time with it, and that is what? The Bible. The Bible. Opening up that, that book, those ancient words are not so ancient. They are alive. They are prevalent. They are present for our life here and now. We love him by being honest with him and taking difficult steps to repent and to be free from our sins. We put on Jesus by proclaiming in faith the promises he has given to us. And then we take actual steps to see those promises lived out in our lives. And again, this is not a, here's the list of things that you have to do as you go to be a quote-unquote good Christian. I don't want you to interpret it that way. This is simply the survival guide he's given to us to be alert. Because we've said yes to his glorious grace, right? And we have a promise for a future. How do we ensure that we're in that promise? How do we ensure that we get it, that we're living accordingly, that we're receiving the grace that he has given? We let the, the indicative nature of that love and grace compel us to seek after him, to put Jesus on, and to have relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the words of Paul and for the reminder to, to come out of the slumber, to come out of the darkness, which we, I know I, can so easily slip into. The ways of this world being too caught up with what's happening in the news or with the well-being of, my, of our retirement package or of what's happening in the neighborhood or this time of season, what's happening with our, our favorite sports team or sports interest, all these things that just lull us to sleep and the thing that we sacrifice is your son, Jesus. So, Father, I ask, I ask that you would help us today to kind of, to say, like sweet Vivian says, to say, dop. To say, no. And to, by faith, just turn to you, Jesus, with open arms. Just like Vivian will do when she wants to be picked up. And just hold her arms out. Doesn't have to say the word, just puts her arms out. And we know like Jason said in the worship time and it's reiterated in this illustration you are there just waiting for us to put our arms up and you will put on Jesus for us I pray I pray that that the simplicity yet the power of that would be a reality in each of our hearts here this morning thank you for your word thank you for Romans thank you for the life the encouragement that we are given each week as we venture in. We ask all this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, who did rise from the dead, who did ascend into heaven, and who is coming back to make right all that is wrong on that glorious day.